here today to praise you, Lord, and we're here to praise you with our lips, but we're also here to offer you praise by the obedience of our lives as we enter into the scriptures, Lord, and we think about so many people going through difficulties right now, Lord, uh, Ken Campbell, Mike Moore, Lord, Joe Kennedy, different individuals that have been on our prayer chain, people we don't even know that hit our prayer chain, Lord. And we're so thankful that you're a God that's present and that you're a God that's kind and comforting. And we pray that there really would be some form of infusing from heaven into these bodies, Lord, that would supply them with the grace and the healing that they need, Lord, to fulfill your will and accomplish your purposes of why they were created. So we pray in each of these situations, Lord, they're numerous, that you would specifically accomplish that which you purpose to do for your glory and for the good of these individuals. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in John 3, if you want to turn there with me. Extremely rich chapter, they all are. But John chapter 3 is extremely rich, and we need to remember that the majority of this chapter is the recording of a conversation with the religious leader of the day of the Jewish nation, the hand of the Sanhedrin, a man by the name of Nicodemus, and the Son of God himself, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. So as we're picking up in the middle of the conversation as we broke off last week that Jesus explained some great spiritual truths into Nicodemus's life because Nicodemus had the religion and he had the ritual, but he didn't have the relationship. And a salvation experience with Jesus Christ is, is experiential. And, and when Christ steps into a life, things change. Convictions change, appetites change, we become new creatures in Christ, Paul the Apostle wrote to us. So you can't come to Jesus and remain the same because of the work that he does. He explains it like the wind, you can't see it, but you can see the effects. And as he speaks to him, he should have remembered being a student of the word as he was supposed to be, that Jeremiah and Ezekiel both prophesied that, I got two pairs of glasses on, that uh, <laughs> my eyesight's bad, but not that bad yet. <laughs> Sound my sunglasses on. But, but said how we would receive new hearts, you know, that there would be a new heart put in us. We, we see in Ezekiel a beautiful prophecy, uh, 37, 38, 39, of, of the nation who, through the breathing forth, <clears throat> the prophetic word of God being breathed into them, that these dead bones would arise again and become an army, how, how God can take something dead and bring it to life. And that's what he's trying to explain to Nicodemus. He's trying to rescue him from religion. I'm so glad I was rescued from religion and brought into this living relationship with Jesus Christ. So it was probably of a gentle, loving rebuke that Jesus would tell him, you are a master of Israel and you don't know these things, or basically you are the teacher, the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. You see, he was much like the religious leaders, the Sadducees, maybe even you who are sitting here today, that, that you will err if you know not the Scriptures nor the power of God. 
If you don't know the wonderful Word of God, and, you're, and if you don't have the Holy Spirit as a teacher living inside of you, opening up its truths to you, then you will err. Your life will go the direction of error. And God loves us too much, and this whole chapter is an unbelievable outpouring of just the reality of the love of God, where John 3, 16, that he loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son, that, that James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, who there's no change with him. And, and what we're seeing before Nicodemus's very eyes was a perfect gift. You and I, we have good gifts. Our spouses are good gifts. Our children are good gifts. The relationships that we have with one another is a good gift. Gilead's a good gift. Old Paz Chapel is a good gift. None of them are perfect gifts. The perfect gifts that God has given us in our life is Jesus Christ and his word. That's the perfect gift. And, and as he goes on to speak about God loving this world, giving his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not heri- uh, perish but have everlasting life. We're getting to a point in it here where this chapter hits the fork in the road. And, and the reason it hits the fork in the road, and the reason that we study it is because God primarily is concerned about your spiritual condition and mine. That's what he cares about. And when God looks down from heaven, I believe there's grave concern over him looking inside of a building and seeing people who are church, but they're not really saved. And Paul felt the same way because he would write to a church that had so many issues going on inside of it. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Don't examine your spouse or your neighbor. Look at yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And that's not God's way of trying to beat somebody up. That's God's way of trying to rescue people. So we're picking up in, in chapter, or verse 17 of chapter 3, and, and we need to remember that from God's point of view, he sees two classes of people walking this planet today, unbelievers and believers. And walking into church is a wonderful thing to do, but it doesn't make you a believer until you've walked into a salvation experience with Jesus Christ. Then you're part of the church. I love this verse, John 3, 17, and one of the reasons I love it is because of what it says, but another reason I love it is because it's what my youngest son told me his favorite verse was. Like, Joe, what's your favorite verse? John 3, 17. I said, oh, you mean John 3, 16? He says, no, I mean John 3, 17, Dad, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I'm like, all right, stand back, man. It's a great verse, too, because you know why? There's probably not an individual in this room that doesn't struggle with condemnation. I love giving people grace and mercy because that's what God gives to me, but I struggle giving it to myself. There's a lot of things I see in the mirror that I do not like. And it's easy to condemn ourselves, but I want you to look at this. For God sent his son, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. How thankful are we for that? We're living in this sphere, this time period, dispensation, whatever you want to call it. We're in the age of grace right now, the church age. And this is a time where the mission objective of Jesus Christ was simply this. Get to that lost world where people are unsaved and save them. That's what we're living in today. 
Okay, now, now maybe you're saved and maybe you've heard this and maybe it's a blah, blah, blah. I've heard this before, but this should birth appreciation because we're celebrating about a month from now that Christ came. What if he didn't? What if Jesus didn't? But he loved us too much to leave us in the state that we were in. The mission's purpose, and I think we need to remember this as Christians, that the mission's purpose of Jesus Christ was salvation, not condemnation. And condemnation in the Greek, it's the word krino. And it literally means to bring down judgment, to bring punishment for the consequences, to punish and to take vengeance on. That's not why Christ came. He came with an an invitation. He came with an opportunity for each of us. But the invitation requires response or no response. There's no indifference to it because not responding is a response. And that's why it's so important for you that when we look at these things, that we would allow these truths to look in us and to see what side of the line we're on because the, the, the fork in the road has split. The cross is there. The decision is needed to be made. And it can't just be an intellectual decision. It needs to be something done in here for real. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. I want you to think about this. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Nicodemus, head of the Jews, right? What was the Jews' mindset towards the world? They were the chosen ones. The other ones were the Gentiles. They were created to keep the fires of hell burning hot. That was the prejudice of the Jews towards the Gentiles. And Jesus is coming, he's flipping that all upside down because that's what religion does. Religion ushers the condemnation. Jesus Christ comes and offers the salvation. Big difference, we want to be in alignment with him. We want to have a spirit-led, Christ-like ministry. So God sent not his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Through him. When Jesus Christ came, you can look at it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We track his ministry. The only judgment in reference to Jesus Christ was what he received. Was what he took on himself. He took the judgment. He took your judgment. He took my judgment. And we see in this that Jesus knew his mission. He knew why he was there. John the Baptist knew his mission. He knew what he was called to. He knew why he was there. Here's the bottom line. We look at the ministry of Jesus Christ three years. We look at the ministry of John the Baptist, half of that. 18 months. But you know what they did? They knew what they were called to, and they did it. Those years were filled with faithfulness. Stand in tune with their calling and not defecting from it. Verse 18 says, 
He that believes on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. To believe on him literally means that you put all your rest upon him. What the Bible declares a saving faith to be is more than intellectual acknowledgement. It's a persuasion of the heart to place life-changing trust in who he is and what he says. And when that choice of the will, when that choice of the heart takes place, the Spirit enters in and there's a new birth. He that believe on him is not condemned. How peaceful is it in your life? Because I really feel like this, if you look at these verses, you either walk away with concern or security. How peaceful is it to know that the judgment of God no longer hangs over your head? Do I deserve it? Absolutely. Ten commandments, slaughtered. Moral code, slaughtered. But by the grace of God, there was a transfer that took place. There was a transfer that took place when I yielded my heart and trust into Jesus Christ, who he is and what he says. And one of the most amazing things about what took place at that moment, other than the Spirit entering me, is the fact that I had the peace of heaven, the peace of everlasting life. Knowing that biblically, all of my sin was placed on him. The judgment that was heading my way the moment I got saved was ricocheted, and Christ took the hit on the cross for me and for you. So as he says this, he that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Paul tells us this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, okay? God has not appointed us unto wrath. It's not God's plan. I think we need to remember that God is extremely gracious. The problem with man is we're extremely fallen. We're extremely depraved. But God is extremely loving unconditionally. He, he, he's extremely gracious and he's extremely merciful. And he hasn't appointed us under wrath, but to obtain salvation. We look at the scriptures, sometimes we don't always understand the way of God. Why was there a hell and why do people that are unbelievers have to go there? We need to realize something about God. That, that the Bible declares, Deuteronomy chapter 32, that God is a just God. And to be a just God, to be just in anything, if we have judges, if they're just, they do the right thing behind a bench. And God must do the right thing for heaven. And he's decreed and he's declared that sin has punishment, sin has consequences, there's ramifications to sin. So for him to carry that out, our sin, your sin, my sin, has to be punished. The difference is we either receive the punishment ourselves in a place called hell or we allow Christ by our faith in him to take the punishment at the cross for you and I so you and I can have everlasting life in heaven. You know what that tells me? That tells me there's a wonderful God in heaven. And if I want to go to hell, I got to step over the dead body of Jesus Christ to get there. 
Because 2,000 years ago, there was a cross that stained in blood that decrees to you and I, there's no way that I could prove to you any deeper the love that I have for you. I've done this so that you could be with me forever. Verse 19 says this, and this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You know, I remember getting saved. This was the first thought in my head that, wow, I can't wait to tell some of my friends. I thought, man, they're going to they're gonna think this is awesome. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> Missed that by 10 miles, you know. I was like, you're a nut, you're in a phase, man. Come on, let's go. But but the problem is this right here, that this is condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That word loved is agape. It literally means that their devotion is to darkness. Because of the Spirit's work in my heart, I wanted to remove myself and devote myself to Christ, but they wanted to stay devoted to what we were doing prior to that. Because their deeds were evil. And, and, and for us, this is the thing, you know, light and darkness. Light will reveal what your nature is. Anybody can hide in church. You can hide in church. Judas, Judas hid in church. The devil hides in church. Anybody can hide in church. But light reveals your nature. What do I mean by that? Well, I have an outdoor light in my house. And if I forget and turn that thing, leave that thing on all night, because electric bills are so cheap these days, and I just leave that thing on all night, I can go out there early morning before the sun comes up. Man, I got these beautiful moths, not this time of the year, but the right time of the year. I got these beautiful, gorgeous moths because they're attracted to the light because that's their nature. When we were down to Hurricane Katrina, we got to stay at somebody's house, you know, and, you know, all the power was out. I think it was, it was on where we were staying the first night, but we were out in the garage, and all of a sudden you turn on the light, and it was all, almost like the whole floor was moving, man. It was like cockroach city, you know, just turn on the light and the cockroaches run. Why? Because that's the cockroach's nature. The light repels the cockroach, but it draws the moth, and it's all because of the natures that are wired within them. Well, if we're born again to the Spirit, we're partakers of the divine nature, and what does that mean? That means that I'm actually drawn to the Word of God. And if I repel the Word of God, and I'm not drawn to the Word of God, and I actually resist the Word of God, or want to get away from the Word of God, that shows me that my nature is unredeemed. David was a redeemed man, and he said this. He goes, Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 1 says that the blessed man is the one who meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. Why? Just to be do-gooders in town? No, because that's their nature. They hunger for it. Job says, I want your word more than my food. That's the work within. That's the work that the Holy Spirit looks to do within each one of our lives. And it's almost like what Peter said, you know, a newborn babe desires the sincere milk of the word. The first thing that happens when you become a believer, when you're born again of the Holy Spirit, you want to eat. And we eat the word of God because we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we got Genesis and Revelation, all that we got. And one thing we don't have is an excuse not to be in it.
This is the condemnation. Lights come into the world. That's Jesus. Jesus is the invitation out of judgment. The invitation out of judgment. Can you imagine drowning and somebody sticking their hand to you and not wait for the next one? <laughs> Jesus is the one way out of judgment. He is the light that's coming to this dark world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. What light does is light really is a revealer. Everyone that does evil hates the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Here's the bottom line. Jesus said he was the light of the world, and then he said we would be the light of the world. And we need to remember this because there's a conflict going on. We can't sit here and think this is just nice moral, play nice church, be these nice moral American people, Christians, and, and, and come and sing praises to God. No, there's war going on. There's war. There is a spiritual conflict, and the most precious thing on the earth is hanging in the balance of human soul. That Jesus said is of more value than the contents of the whole material universe. That's how much value one soul holds. But when you walk into the light, you walk out of darkness. And sometimes you're going to find the more you become like Jesus, the more you'll be treated like he was. We look at Jesus, right? Despised and rejected. Slandered and lied about. They wanted to extinguish him and his truth. And he knew that he was hated for the sake of the truth. We do not set out to make enemies. But living in the light and walking in the truth can produce hatred towards us. Because what it declares from the way that you choose to live honoring God is that there is a God in heaven that you choose to live accountable to. And if we believe that, then that conviction slides over to them and they're not happy about it because people don't want to give an account. I want to live my life the Frank Sinatra way doing it my way. And doing it my way is the highway to hell. I'll go from Frank to ACDC, okay? <laughs> Hope I didn't stumble anybody. I had that album. I'm born again. I've been set free. But verse 21 says, he that doeth truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they're wrought in God. That's a practice, that's habit, that's present tense, it speaks a lifestyle. Notice it doesn't say perfection. Thank God, I would be DQ'd before all of you. <laughs> It doesn't say perfection, but, but this is the habitual lifestyle that we do truth. We do truth. That, that's, that's active, okay? That's not academic only. That's active. That's activated. That's lifestyle. 
That's living faith. Saving faith produces living faith, which produces harmony <coughs> with us living in the Word because belief reveals itself in behavior. True belief reveals itself in our behavior. So verse 22 says, and, these, and, and after these things came Jesus and his disciples in the land of Judea, and he tarried and he baptized. Now, now, just to jump ahead to let you know in the next chapter, we're going to find out that Jesus himself didn't baptize. It was, it was his disciples baptizing other people. Okay, And I, I think because of the foreknowledge of God being as amazing as it is, he just knew that that would create conflict. Oh, you were baptized by Paul? <laughs> That's too bad. I was baptized by Jesus. I mean, we run into that in the church of Corinth, right? Where everybody wanted to gravitate towards their favorite Bible teacher and create schism at the church there. And Paul would even go on to say, I just probably got into the realm of baptism because thank God I didn't baptize any of you except two individuals. Because God didn't want the emphasis to be off of the work. And one of the greatest criminal things that has taken place in the church today is stealing from the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus. He said it's finished. Nothing we add to that. Not Jesus plus Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life crucified on a cross for our salvation at the end, declaring, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And, to, and, and declaring to tell us that, paid in full. There's the receipt. That's what you need to exchange for the fact that your sins have been paid for. And you can't add to it. And adding to it is slapping them in the face. I'm saved because of Jesus Christ shedding his blood on his cross for me period. Not because I got baptized in a hot tub in a Baptist church. Not because I got called into the ministry in 2003. None of those things. Those are all things that came on the other side of salvation. In verse 23, it says, And John was baptized in Anon near, near Salem because there was much water there. And they came and they were baptized. So we had this whole baptismal revival going on. And it says in verse 24, For John was not yet cast into prison. Not yet. There's a lot of not yets in life for us. There's not yet blessings and there's not yet difficulties. But this is what I want to remind you. We don't find John worrying about what was ahead. Because we find John being faithful with what was at hand. If we're too busy worrying about what is ahead we will lose sight of being faithful with what is at hand. We're going to see that eventually he's going to pay the price of martyrdom because he was an individual that spoke truth, he spoke righteousness, and there was a cost to his uncompromised truth. 
But this was a man that was willing to hold the line. And God help us to have men and women who are willing to hold the line regardless of the cost. That's been the legacy of our family that's been handed down to us from the onset of the church age. He's going to have an 18-month ministry, no miracles. Jesus would say, of all born under woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Encapsulate him with two thoughts. I, for me, if I were to encapsulate John, it would be with two thoughts. Divine truth and great humility. Divine truth in great humility. And that produced somebody that was great in the eyes of God. There arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. So these guys, you know, uh, says here uh, a question. It's more of a dispute. They probably got into it a little bit. Um, and they came to John and they said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, speaking of Jesus, behold, the same baptizeth, in verse 26, says this, and all men come unto him. The ministry of Jesus Christ was beginning to pick up momentum. John's disciples were having problems with that. It's called ministry jealousy. We're going to see that John is thrilled about that. We have a church in our town that right now doesn't have a full-time pastor. I drive by that church every day, and I pray that God would give them a man after his own heart that could be the possibility of bringing revival to our town. Why? Because it wouldn't even matter if that church became bigger or more popular than Old Paz Chapel. Because it's not about popularity and it's not about numbers. It's about people coming to Christ. And that's what John's going to redirect here. The greatest thing. All men come unto him. We've had people leave this church. Some on good notes. Some on bad notes, unfortunately. And, and I know people that have gone on from old paths and, and they've grown in the Lord. And I rejoice in that. I'm so thankful. Although it's the smaller number of those who have left. But I'm glad to hear that because the vision of any ministry that's worth its salt and is birthed out of the Word of God is that men and women would come to Christ. So they were having a problem with this. There's no better news. And John says this. He says, a man can receive nothing except to be given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent before him. Remember, this individual chose to be a reflector, not an absorber of the glory of God. He wanted to reflect the light of God. 
He wanted to give all the glory to Christ. He wanted to make sure that it was Jesus that was exalted. That's what he cared about, and that's what he was trying to implant into the hearts of his disciples here. Now, when he spoke about Jesus concerning him, he said Jesus was the Christ. He was not the Christ. He's going to go on to call Jesus the bridegroom, him only being the friend of the bridegroom. He's going to go on to say that Jesus must increase while John admits he needs to decrease, that Jesus is from above, and above all, John is simply from the earth. Jesus would speak the words of God, but he speaks the words of the earth. So he's creating a separation, which is very wise because he doesn't want those in his ministry to be exalting him when his whole ministry is about exalting Christ. The only one we put on a pillar at Old Past Chapel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 29 says, He that has the bride is the bridegroom. And remember, the bridegroom was coming from his bride, which would be birthed not too long after Acts chapter 2, when Pentecost when the Spirit's poured out and the church is birthed at Pentecost, Jesus being the, the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom. So, so John's like the best man at, at, at the wedding, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, my joy thereof, is fulfilled. The joy of his heart is the fruit of being occupied with Christ. Look at John being the best man of the wedding, Jesus being the groom. And he was losing his congregation to Jesus' ministry. And he was happy about it. He was very happy about it. I want you to look at what it says. Because I don't know about you, but we do live in some challenging times. And I want my joy to be complete or fulfilled. And according to what John tells us in verse 29 here, that having a fulfilled joy is linked to hearing him. Hearing Jesus. What does that mean? That means I don't get up and I don't plow through my chapters in the Bible so that I can get it done, maybe feel a little bit better about myself, a little pat, a little spiritual pat on the back, but, but I get into my Bible because I need to hear the still small voice of Jesus Christ who's alive with me, left behind an empty tomb to remind me to speak things into my life because he knows where I'm at and he knows what I need to hear. There's been so many times that that still small voice of God has met me in a way that nobody can. And I'm here to tell you that voice of Jesus Christ will meet you the way nobody can. But you've got to give him opportunity because he says here the joy was from hearing him, continually listening to him. The same author, John the Apostle, writing about John the Baptist, would later tell us in John chapter 3 that he has no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in the truth. This is a prayer for my kids. Give me one prayer on earth. Lord, 
Let my children walk in your truth. They weren't just walking in the truth. They were walking with the truth. The personification of the word of God, which is the truth, was side by side with them. They joined Jesus' church, and John's disciples were ticked about it. So John's reeling them in a little bit. I think when I look at this, I, I look at our lives, our lives are so crazy. I know mine is. Those early morning hours are sweet to me because they're minimal and they're interruptions. And they're vital to spiritual development for me because I got a lot of things that are still underdeveloped. It was very easy for me, especially being in the ministry, having a bunch of kids, just the busyness of life to be like a Martha and be doing. But Mary chose the better thing. She sat at his feet and heard his word. The Greek tense of that is she kept listening. She kept listening. You know when God speaks to you because the fruit of it will be peace and joy. It's a joy even to be corrected by the Lord because it's a reminder of that we're loved. This really, from what the scholars believe, is from 30, John speaking, 31 picks up with John the Apostle speaking. So if that be true, this is the last words that we're left with from John the Baptist. This is the epitaph. This is what legitimately... Because it was real, it wasn't counterfeit, it was sincere. This could be engraved on his tombstone. He must increase, but I must decrease. <clears throat> I want you to look at what he says there. Sometimes we read it like this in our modern day Christianity. He should increase. It would be nice if he increased. John says this, he must. And I must. Warren Wiersbe points out the fact that there's three musts in this chapter. There's a must of the sinner that he told Nicodemus about in verse 7. You must be born again. That there's the must of the Savior found in verse 14 where he must be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And then there's the must of the servant right here. He must increase, 
but I must decrease. When you look at the life of Paul the Apostle, and as you study his character, you find that he grew in the same direction of what John the Baptist said here. In 55 AD, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he called himself the last of the apostles. And then a few years later, in 61 AD, when he wrote the book of Ephesians, he called himself the very least of the saints. And then around 64 AD, in 1 Timothy 1, he called himself the chief or the foremost of sinners. For you and I to fulfill the very purposes of why we were created so that we don't have a life of waste and so that we don't have a life of regret. He needs to increase. And we need to decrease. We can go the way of John the Baptist or we can contrast that with another individual that we know. I'll read it to you real quick because of time. This individual was the beautiful, probably worship leader in heaven, named Lucifer before he became Satan. The pronouncement on him by Isaiah was, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut to the ground, which did weaken the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. We see that Lucifer had an eye problem. Not an EYE, but capital I. This is the original narcissist. But I don't say that lightly because as you study the Bible, we recognize, according to what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, that we are going to be living in a day at the end before Christ returns where there will be so much worldly bombardment that would even creep into the church. Self-love will be priority. Self-love will be the priority. Men will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. William Carey, the great missionary to India, who did so many things for the kingdom of God amongst the people of India, said this, When I am gone, do not talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone be magnified. This is the last thing that John leaves us and it's written with the greatest of humility. It's written with sincere humility. And I believe that when we look at this, this guy spent time with Jesus. We see that he'd been in his presence. 
Humility is a rare trait even within the church. But humility is forged in the proper perspective of self in the light of the glory of God. That's where humility is forged. We will never grow in humility if we don't spend time in the presence of God. If we strictly just read our Bibles but don't experience its author, we will never grow in humility from being in the presence of God. Isaiah went from pronouncing woe to everybody as a prophet until he got into the presence of God. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and then his woes went from them to me. Woe unto me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Andrew Murray said that that pride can take the highest of angels and turn him into a devil. And that's exactly what happened with Lucifer. But the greatness of John the Baptist was because he was willing to allow the attribute of humility to be forged in his life by seeing himself in the light of who he truly was in the presence of Jesus Christ. So we see now that John is on a decrease. He was like a spiritual umbilical cord. <laughs> he was bringing the life of God's truth, that which supplied what was needed for life and growth until it was no longer needed. He was like the star that was shining before the sun arose. And once the sun arose, the light of that star faded so only that the sun could be seen. And he was willing to be that guy. So because the time will close out there, Well, you know, the important, the important thing really in this chapter, I mean, we've taken two weeks to do it. Well, two and a half. I've got to finish it next week. Um, it's a life-altering, eternally sealing chapter based upon what you do with its truths. It draws the line. And you can't say you're undecided because if you're undecided, you're decided. The Bible says that if you've heard his voice, harden not your heart because today is the day of your salvation. There's a fork in the road, there's the gift of God, his son Jesus Christ impaled there for you and for me. And you have the opportunity to resist his drawing power to give you forgiveness and eternal life and to pay for your sins forever in a place that was created for Satan and his angels, not for you. Or you can finally respond after all these years of resisting him. In hearing these things, 
and having one foot in the world and one foot out of the world and going to church just to make me feel a little bit better because I'm wearing the guilt of the week, whatever it might be. But the Holy Spirit wants you to respond to the invitation to be saved and to remove the judgment for your sin from hanging over your head anymore. There's nothing like being free from the penalty that I deserve to pay, but was already paid. I get the pardon because he took the penalty. If you don't know where you stand with Christ, or if you think you're right with him, but your life hasn't changed, you're still devoted to darkness, your nature is to still run from the light, not be drawn to it. I don't want you to play games with your soul. James says, life's a vapor. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You can stand and we're going to close out without the last song. If that's you today, we want you to have the eternal security of knowing that this was the day you made Christ your Lord and Savior. This was your spiritual birthday. You got to be born again. You can't just have one physical birth. The Bible says we're born, twi- we're born twice, we die once. If we're born once, we die twice. What that means is a physical birth and a spiritual birth, we only encompass physical death. But when you're born twice, or when you're born once, you have a physical birth and a, sp- or a physical death and a spiritual death. And if the Spirit of God's working in your heart today, you fear an insecurity about yourself, a concern, As we dismiss today, come on up. We'd love to pray with you so that you might know for sure that these things are written, that you would know you have eternal life and Christ can become your Lord and Savior. We'll give you a brand new Bible to get you on your journey. Father, bless these people today as they go forth, Lord. These are your vessels of honor, Lord. These are your living epistles. And Lord, that you have put seed in our hearts that we're not supposed to keep there, but we're supposed to spread it where we go this week. So we pray for the spreading of gospel seed, and we ask you to bless it, Lord, and that you'd bring fruit from it. Encourage every one of these hearts, Lord. Bless every one of these families, Lord. Help them to raise their kids in your ways, Lord, so that they would grow up to be great uh, warriors for your kingdom. So we thank you for your love. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this day where we are overloaded with benefit and blessing from heaven. I pray if there's anyone here that's uns. unsure, Lord, where they stand with you, that they would humble themselves, Lord, and come receive you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord.